0: Has anyone seen any?
1: Up the rock candy climbing wall.
0: Any? What are you doing up there?
2: This rock candy wall is a better idea than I expected. I was just getting some of the blueberry flavor. (laughs) Hey, you made the wall, so you have no one to blame if you put the oat flavored candy at the very top. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, good question. How would an equine
0: do rock climbing? Why do I get the feeling this is going to be one of those weird assaults of afternoons?
1: Rock climbing isn't so bad, really. I'm afraid of heights. It could be a lot of fun. Not more fun than sitting here with my coffee. As my uncle always says, this season of the Bug Hunters Cafe is made possible by Soft Terrific and Mouse Paw Media. Your uncle never says that. Oh, right, that's what you always say. And I say I'm keeping both feet on the ground.
3: Hey, I see you tried the climbing wall it's delicious and best of all strawberry flavor is right at the eye level so i didn't have to climb for it isn't that missing the point it's raw candy eating it is the point i went up for the raspberry flavor want some uh sure just it to the top of my ice cream here
1: i wonder if i should save some for sam tagger he's the owner of sas workshops president of gdevcon na host of the labview experiment podcast uh, he's a LabVIEW expert who's all about processes and focus on humans instead of technology, and he's joining us for coffee today. Also, isn't he
3: running a bit late?
4: Lowering.
3: He's not late. He's up the wall.
1: Of course. He's also a climbing enthusiast. That's the first place I should have looked. Hi, Sam. Off belay. Thanks. Belay off.
4: Hey, how are you?
1: Pretty good. What flavor did you get?
4: I got raspberry. I thought it was the best.
1: Oh, yeah. It's my favorite. Well, I like blueberry, too. Both of them are up there at the top. (laughs) Have you ever climbed a rock candy wall before, or is that a new one for you? Uh, That's a new one.
4: I climbed a lot of stuff, but never anything you could eat. So, it was interesting. I had to decide, like, did I want to pull in the holder, or did I want to pick it off and eat it? So. (laughs)
3: Yeah, most people don't understand the challenge of climbing things you can eat. The more you climb, the fatter you get, and harder it is. So yep. treat it as a very uh, good exercise.
4: You also get hungry as you go up, so yeah. that so Yeah,
3: absolutely. Hey, if you think that's
1: something, you should see Bojan when he's skiing on ice cream. <laughs>
4: <laughs> wow, that sounds like fun. I think I'd want to like fall and just faceplant and eat it
3: all. Usually uh my cardiologist uh, likes to ski with me in those situations just to be uh there for me. <laughs> yeah. So Sam, um you
1: I followed you for a while on on like LinkedIn and whatever and, and you are a whiz at something I know absolutely nothing about which is lab view. What, what for, for, for those of us who are uninitiated and, and, and are working in something like Python or whatever, what is LabVIEW?
4: Well, it is a programming language, but it's very different from any other programming language you have ever seen. Um, basically, you draw diagrams instead of actually writing lines of code. So if you think back to like... Remember, like Jurassic Park, like when they thought of like ha- what a computer would look like. Remember, and like the file system, and like you move through it and all that stuff. It's kind of like that type of experience. Uh, basically, when it was created, the people who created it decided that when you write when you create a program, one of the first things you do is you write a flowchart, right, of how you want things to look. You know, you read any of the beginner programming books, and they've all got flow charts in them. Mm-hmm. And they just said, well, what if we just stop there and you just do the flowchart? Oh. Instead of like having to like write all these text lines, you just draw a flowchart that says what you want to do, and then it somehow on the back end, it all gets turned into ones and zeros. And the computer figures it out.
3: So okay. I have two questions. How do you debug uh, diagrams, and can you change their color? And before you yes. answer that, oh. would you like any coffee?
1: Because I just realized I haven't asked you for your order. I time. was
4: going to say I, that was in the back of my head. Actually, I don't drink coffee. I drink mate. All right. So if I can get some mate and put a little melange in it,
1: that would be really awesome. All right. Yeah, I will absolutely grab that. And, uh, Boyan, you want your usual? Yes. And I, I hear that they are um, putting a uh, stick of peppermint and a sprinkle of of pure
3: childlike excitement on it today. <gasps> yes. Bring me that. Bring me all of that. All right. I will go get that. I will be right back.
4: Thank you, Jason.
3: So the colors of diagram and breakpoints.
4: Yeah, so you could totally change the colors. The really interesting thing, so there's two interesting things about LabVIEW. Uh, One is you can actually see the code executing, right? So you have all these blocks, and they're connected by wires. And you could see like little bubbles that represent the data that flow along the wire from one block to another, which is really interesting. That's really interesting. The other thing is doing parallel programming is really easy, because you just drop two blocks down, and they both automatically run in parallel, which apparently is really hard. Like, I don't do a whole lot of uh, text-based programming. I'm trying to learn Python, but apparently asynchronous programming in text-based languages is kind of hard, having multiple things in parallel and and having this spawning new threads and all this stuff. And in LabVIEW, it's super easy. You get it for free, which is kind of cool.
3: Yeah. Python is great for many things, but multi-threading is not one of them. I'm sure people will disagree with me, but I love when parallelism is uh, free.
4: Yeah. So yeah, uh, I've played around a little bit with Python, and I managed to get some stuff to do happen in parallel. Uh, I don't know if it's like truly parallel, but you know, create a queue and spawn a bunch of workers and have them pull stuff off the queue. I've, I've been able to do that. But yeah. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, the other interesting thing about LabVIEW is it's really tied to hardware, so it's not like creating web pages or anything. It's uh, comes out of a lab, so the first part of it is "lab" stands for laboratory, so it's for like reading data from instruments and then controlling real-world things. So yeah, you, know, you write a bunch of code, and instead of seeing a cool web page or database or something, you'd actually like things move in the real world, hmm. which is interesting and scary because uh, if you have a bug, it can be a lot cause a lot of problems you, know, you turn on the thousand kilovolt electric supply when you shouldn't that, that causes problems sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, like a lot of it interacts with pumps and motors and valves and things like that. So.
3: We had a university course, uh, that was related to that. And it was really hard because there's lots of mathematics involved.
4: Yeah, you have to know a little bit of the math, and a lot of it's uh, understanding the science and the physics of what's going on too, which makes it for very makes it very interesting. Because like the mantra in the lab you community is, "Don't hire a programmer, hire an engineer, and teach them how to program," because the engineer will understand the physics. The problem is they never bother to teach them how to program. Like they say that part, but then they never do it, and so then they end up making a huge mess. So that's kind of where i come in because i try come in and try to help them clean it up usually i'm like the clean up crew
1: here's your mate sam um and uh, oh, actually you. your drink is actually running on um ubuntu mate right now too so oh your, cool so got. Yeah, uh, is it yours. the
4: latest and greatest version is it up, fully updated
1: yeah, it's uh, it's the it's the um, it's the uh, beta release, I think, actually. Oh, okay, cool. There's a little taste of adventure in there. Here you go, Bolian. So if I
4: start feeling weird, that's what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, the the effects will pass shortly, we'll just by the bug report.
4: Okay, great.
1: That's good. Yeah, and I've got my usual caramel macchiato. Oh. So, there's there's yours, Bullion.
3: I have to ask you. What is the strangest uh, piece of uh, code you got from uh, an engineer? Because I also work a lot with uh, uh, data scientists. Okay. And the best piece of code I ever got was uh, somebody named their variables. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They got to Z and I was like, super curious. What's going to happen now? They started with alphabet, comma, delta, whole Greek alphabet.
4: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah I mean I've had I deal a lot with people like their their version of source code control is like a zip drive with uh, stuff in folders and things. And I had one where recently where I opened the project in the library we have this project file that points to all your files on disk and it couldn't find any of the files because they were all still in zip version one point one or something and this was version one point five. And so they hadn't it was just weird. So there's some weirdness like that that goes on. Um, Yeah, that's probably one of the weirder ones I've had.
1: I I remember working with some data science code and going through and seeing names that just made zero sense to me. I I was working with a data scientist and they kept asking, okay, what's this? What is this? What is this? And I came up with this one variable is called SMTG. And uh, or should know it, it was in a comment somewhere. It's this uh, SMTG. And I'm like SMTG. I just, I'm not. I'm not from the data science community. I never. This was you know relating with you know light microscopy, which I'm not an expert in. And I'm just going, what is this thing? And so I asked the data scientist, and he's scratching his head. He's going, I, I don't know. I, I've never seen this before. And about ten minutes later, I received a Slack message from me. He said, I figured it out. I said, what it is? He said, It's a, It's a. It's a. Um, it's an acronym. For not an acronym, it's an abbreviation for something.
4: <laughs> yeah, that was the first thing that I thought of too.
1: And I'm just like, something? <laughs> All of this work, and it's something, because it was right in the spot on the sentence where it looked like it should be some sort of acronym for some sort of technology. I'm just like, oh, ow. <laughs> yeah,
4: well, one of the worst ones I encountered, I, I, counted, I uh, inherited a project and was pulling down some data from a web service for an order, and it had an order ID and an order number. And Uh one was a string, and one was an integer.
1: And they weren't even the same value. Yeah, and the
4: one that said order num was the string, and the order ID was the integer, which is really weird. Ow. And like, yeah, and so it was so confusing. And trying to talk to anybody about it, like, oh, well, orders with this ID, and did you mean ID or number, or like, you know, how do you sort them? Yeah, it was really interesting.
1: Merciful heavens. Well, one one thing I've learned is that when I'm going through refactoring, it's the first thing I will do is I will fix the names. Nothing else, just the names, because it's amazing how much changing the names will, will make the code readable.
4: Yeah, that is definitely huge. Where you have to watch for sometimes if, if stuff is getting loaded like by name or by reference somewhere, that's also... because I've had that happen before where I'm like, oh, I'll change the name of this to make it make more sense, but then something else is relying on that name being a certain way.
3: Mm -hmm. I just love it uh, when I see in code basically somebody changing uh, system path to include some other files and then. Oh, yeah, those uh, I'm not going to import stuff. I'm just going to change the system path and then everything is going (laughs) to work.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Well, in Python, there's interesting stuff where like you override the names of like the built in functions. That's always fun. Create your own yeah. add function or, or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That can uh, get I, scary.
3: I cannot uh, number the number of times I saw ID and some uh, rewritten by somebody. Because those are inbuilt uh, Python names and people just, oh, this is going to be called some. Let me just write the inbuilt function.
4: Yeah. I definitely uh, did that the other day. I had a variable named ID and I was like, yeah bad idea. Immediately, I was like, ah, don't do that. But that's one of those things. If you don't know, you don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's, I imagine that's one of the challenges that a lot of you mentioned engineers who are now coding. You know, yeah, like, Just us take an engineer teaching to code is that when they don't know how to code necessarily, then they're going to be engineers and they're going to engineer a solution around a problem before finding out whether or not anyone else has engineered a solution around that problem before. And it doesn't help the documentation is never particularly clear on anything.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's a huge problem in the LabVIEW industry, in general, is reinventing the wheel. Part of it is there's there's some open source stuff, but it's not really all that vibrant, because most of the projects, a lot of them are uh, aerospace and DoD stuff, and they're like, super secretive, so they don't want to share anything. And then also just there's the whole idea of like, even in Python, like knowing what's out there, and knowing where to go to find it and stuff. I mean, Python's a little bit easier. You can go to PyPy and find whatever you want, but in LabVIEW, it's a little bit harder. So, yeah, and, and even too, like even internally, like in large companies, that's that's a big challenge. I don't know if you guys worked with many large companies, but I worked in a large company for a while and there were like several other groups doing LabVIEW programming. We never even heard of each other. We didn't even know each other existed. I, I remember going to a LabVIEW conference and running into a guy with a shirt that had the same logo on it. I was like, wait, you work at our company. So
1: like surprise.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And so as you might imagine, in those cases, everybody's reinventing the wheel because nobody knows there's anybody else out there to, to bounce ideas off of or to borrow code from. So
3: yeah, working every time I worked with a large company, it was absolutely something surreal. Working for one company that I will not name, we had a daily stand up with uh, 70 people. Oh. Yep. <laughs> well,
4: standing up would encourage you to go really fast in this situation.
3: I think. It was remote.
4: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The daily stand up doesn't work when we're all sitting down. <laughs> but...
4: I was going to say, I feel that works well if you've got like less than five people and you can keep it quick and just like, hey, here's what's going on. But yeah, any more than that, and it gets really long, really quick. And people always switch into problem solving mode, too.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Just drags working, it out. I was working with a team and there were two. There were a couple of people on the team that really capable engineers, but they kept wanting to go into problem solving mode. and They kept wanting to hash it out. It's like. It's like it's hard because it's like wh- when do you cut them off? Because you don't want to stop them from taking thirty seconds and figuring out how to unblock each other so we can move on with the day, but then you don't want them to uh, iterate on it right in the middle of the meeting. And so it's like that ba- balancing act. Of when do you just say, you know what, let's take this conversation offline? <laughs> is very very hard to navigate because it seems easy to say is like, oh we'll just we'll just defer all that conversation after stand up. Except usually people have other things right after the stand-up. So it's like, that might be the only chance they have to talk. And it's like, how do you do this? So it's tough to navigate. Yeah, I don't
4: know. Maybe it's like you make the... At a point of like always uh, leaving like half an hour after the stand-up free
1: for that. Yeah, might, might have to. <laughs>
4: hey, uh, this melange is really good. Where do you guys get that from?
1: Um... I am not even sure what melange is, to be honest. I just passed on the
3: order. What,
1: oh, what okay. is melange?
4: Oh, I don't know. I thought it came from Arrakis or something.
3: Isn't melange uh, in French uh, the mixture of something?
4: Oh, is it? Okay.
3: Cool. See, now, now I have to now I have to look this up. What is melange? <laughs> I, I thought that... it was
4: like the spice stuff that comes from like a, the <gasps> sand dunes or something.
3: Jason, we are feeding our guests with unknown stuff. This is Well, this <laughs> happened before.
4: I asked for it, so I I yes yeah.
3: not Oh, here we go, Melange. Um oh this is
1: helpful. A collection containing a variety of miscellaneous things. Mixed with often incongruous elements or a Viennese coffee specialty. Half steamed milk and half coffee. So there you go. Oh, okay.
4: Um, well, whatever it is, it's good. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I I think it's probably if if I, I suspect in this cafe, it's probably the first thing, so who knows what's in the volage. <laughs> it is miscellaneous. That's a, you know what? Since it's running Ubuntu Mate, they probably just enabled the multiverse repository and called it good. Ah.
3: Good. I like it. Chaos way, is
1: sometimes delicious. <laughs>
3: uh, by the way, Jason mentioned you really focus on uh, processes and helping people. So I need advice from you. How do I stop uh, people from changing uh, Agile uh, stuff? Everybody's trying to customize it so it fits their uh, organization, but they really shouldn't do that. Like, how do we make sure they are keeping to the letter of the Agile without any customization?
4: That is an interesting question. I don't know. Is there an official Agile I mean, my understanding was right, self-organizing teams and they kind of put their own way.
1: But That was mine.
4: But, but though, like, that definitely does lead to people doing things and you're like, and they say it's agile and you're like, uh, that doesn't really sound agile to me, but I don't know if that's me coming from my perspective. I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to like, what's the goal? The goal is to be able to respond to change quickly then that should be your measure, right? So if a customer asks for some change in direction, how quickly can you respond? If the answer is really slowly, then I'd say that's probably not Agile.
3: Oh, but I thought Agile was like, you need to have only one ticket uh, in the uh, in-progress task. Uh, You need to have exactly two sentences per description and something like that. (laughs) I think that's yeah, called and- zombie scrum. <laughs> yeah, because every time I give a suggestion in projects like that where there's a bunch of rules, they tell me that's not according to Scrum. So I'm I think there is some sort of super secret cabal of Scrum Masters that have rules. And I'm not very knowledgeable of that, so I don't, I don't
4: know. Th- I'm gonna go out on them here and I'm probably gonna piss off a lot of people, but I'm gonna say that I don't think Scrum is very agile, only because it tends to be imposed from the top down. So, I mean, I think if you if you, as a group of developers get together and say, hey, there's a Scrum thing over here, that looks interesting, let's try it. I think that's totally agile. If your boss comes in and says, you're all gonna get Scrum Master certified and you're all gonna do Scrum, and it's whatever he defines as Scrum, I, that, that seems kind of strange to me.
1: Actually this happened to me just in a conversation um, a couple of weeks ago because I had pulled something. I've been the scrum master for the team I'm on and I pulled something out of our sprint because we talked about it, like, you know what, we're not gonna get to this. This is just not a reasonable goal. We've had other things that became higher priority, so let's let's adjust our goals and this thing, let's just go ahead and shift this to next sprint we pulled out. And one of the one of the people I was working with on kind of more of a project management and said, well, you know, that's fine. You know, go ahead and do that because, you know, we're not purists around here. But, you know, just so you know, that's not typical Scrum. You know, the Scrum guy uh, bans that. And I said, uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I went and looked it up. I said, actually, the Scrum guy says this is very much the opposite. It's adapting to change. And it talks about the circumstances under which you actually change that backlog for the sprint. Um, And she's like, oh my gosh, so I was taught wrong. She got the official Scrum certification and they had this whole thing talking about how you don't change the backlog. And that's when we realized that, well, it kind of makes some sense. The official Scrum certification, if you think about it, there's like, what, four levels for each of the Mm -hmm. major roles and they're really expensive and they're like multi-day courses. Scrum is a six-page document. You cannot get 12 (laughs) multi-day, multi- multi hundred-dollar courses out of a six-page document it just cannot happen
3: Jason it reminds me of a certain religion that I should not name <laughs> <laughs> it reminds
1: me of a few religions actually I think too. yeah no it's 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 one well, I've I've made well I have made the remark before that something is from a religion not a methodology I think there's two forms of Scrum. There's Certified Scrum and then there's Actual Scrum. And I think to your point, Sam, perhaps Certified Scrum actually is not Agile at all.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm not against it if it works, but I just, I hear a lot of complaints that it doesn't work. And I think a lot of it is the the top-down imposition. And also, the other interesting thing I find about Scrum, and I'm not an expert on Scrum, we did it at the one place I worked, but... My understanding is it doesn't really talk about technical practices at all, either. It's more of the, the project management side of it, which is important. I mean, that that's very important. But in order to, to move quickly like that, you have to have good technical practices. right? So you have to be doing some form of CI, CD type stuff. You have to be refactoring. You have to be you know, doing some form of testing and things like that. And if you're not doing that, then the, all the management stuff doesn't really help.
1: Well, of course, the hand-wavy Scrum Master answer to that is, well, your team should be working out their definition of done. But Well, there is that, too, yeah. But that doesn't say anything for what that definition of done should be. So in your experience, especially in the projects you've worked and you mentioned, like CICD or whatever, what are some things that you notice a lot of teams leave out of their definition of done, whether formal or
4: informal? Uh, Well, I mean, I think, I, for me, like... My process thing, like, I don't really talk much about definition and to me, it's all about trying to get as quick feedback as possible to make sure that we're building the right thing and that we're building it well enough and that we don't, we're not introducing bugs. But when it comes to the done thing, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like the amateur, I think just writes the code till it works and it works once and they say good. And then they ship it out. Right. Whereas the expert is like, okay, it works but now i've got all these tests for all the edge cases and now i've made sure that like when i release it it's actually going to work.
1: So to me that's change, change like it's resilient.
4: Yeah, exactly. So that's like the big thing is not just like oh i ran it once and it worked so therefore it's done. And also too i feel like a lot of people leave off the documentation side of things although i'm not entirely sure that everything need like there's a fine line right some people are like very documentation heavy and i'm not sure that's necessarily the right way either. So finding a good balance.
1: So, yeah. so what you're what you're telling me is works on my machine is not a reliable mantra to live by.
4: Absolutely not. <laughs> but that, that goes to the like y- y- here's part of the thing: like, how resilient does it really need to be? Like, if and this is something I, I've been thinking about lately, like, because I've watched some videos where people like, Oh, you don't need unit tests, just test in production and make sure you've got good monitoring and blah and that. And there is some value in that, like, for example, I'm working on this one project, and it's talking to some hardware, and I don't have the hardware in front of me. So I do the best I can, I test it, but the actual ultimate test is I send them a beta release, and they go install it, and does it run, and does it do what it's supposed to do? Okay, great. So for me, it's about trying to get to the point where I can release that beta release as quickly as possible, so they can go test it. And I try my best to assure there's no, there's no problems in there, but I can't guarantee that until I have results back from them.
1: So, so into, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, uh, I ran into that exact same problem when I was working on um that that light microscopy data science project I mentioned because the whole thing was supposed to run on a GPU which I did not have, and uh, on an HPC cluster which I did not have access to, so I had to refactor the entire thing blind. I relied on tests. Test unit testing was the only way I knew the thing thing ran at all because I had no way of getting the real data no way of ever hoping that the real data would run through, you know, because we're talking about multi-gigabyte microscopic yeah. slides. Yeah. And the only way I was able to verify it worked, was well was testing. Yeah. Um, but then there's certainly, you know, that that certainly underscored the difference between, cool, it passes the unit test, now let's make it actually run in the environment, that gap between the two.
4: Yeah, what I found is really useful for that type of stuff is uh, approval testing, I think it's really useful. Particularly if you inherited a project so like a lot of times, a lot of the instruments I talk to talk over serial. So if I inherit a project, I can literally just sit there and capture all the serial commands that are going across, and then I can replay them. And if they match, then that's good, and then I can change whatever I want as long as the serial commands match. Like that boundary interface is still
1: the same. So, That, that is actually the premise we wound up operating on because we wanted to refactor a working end-to-end machine learning-driven workflow. Um, And what we wound up doing is uh, a couple of the data scientists went in and they captured the one of the starting slides, the finished results, and a couple of the intermediaries. We took a tiny little trim from like the middle of it, where there's a lot of interesting things, this really tiny little segment. And we fed that through and we kept iterating on it. We literally wrote the unit test to rely on this little bit. And it was based on this little section because we could run that on a CPU just like mm-hmm. bit by bit. Like we could take the intermediary piece so we didn't actually have to run the machine learning, okay. take that intermediary piece okay. and see, okay, does it get to the next intermediary piece? And that's how we wound up building it. We came up with this whole idea to uh, then take the full size image and write, like you're mentioning, acceptance tests. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, to verify that the output, the input and the output were the same. So, given this input and the new algorithm, this should be the new output. And we actually wound up uh, we actually wound up setting up a pipeline to test that um, as we went, so that we would know if something if like the data was now fundamentally different. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I've seen people do that with image processing stuff because you're processing these giant images and, you know, running the test with the entire image, it takes forever. But you create, like, a a 10 by 10 pixel or however many pixel, like, representation of part of it and you use that as your unit test and then you have some sort of acceptance test at the end that's an actual image and an actual result and you verify that they're the same.
3: Yeah,
1: it was weird as we actually wound up discovering there was a bug because we were assuming that the result of this subsection would match, but we forgot that we were cropping. So there mm. were assumptions that we were making that like the literal edge and corner cases- Boundary so conditions. edge and corner cases, yeah. yeah, the boundary conditions, except literal image boundaries <laughs> were beca- causing different behaviors and we had to actually account for that and kind of parse through those and decide what, how to handle each one. And it, was, it was fascinating, but it definitely gave me deep appreciation for acceptance testing after that.
4: Yeah, this test is really huge, especially like what I do, because, you know, you can have the code do all the right things. But if you're manipulating hardware stuff like the hardware stuff might not behave the way you thought it did. Right. Like you could get the physics wrong or something or like, you know, you're moving motors around and like maybe there's some interference between two of them that you didn't account for or something like that. Or you hit a weird boundary condition where like it hits a, a stop or something or. You know, the motor, like, runs into something that shouldn't be there, but then it's stalled, and then what happens?
1: So There was an article I was reading recently about how analog is making a comeback in some, some cases. Analog computing, because they're discovering that digital is really lousy at, at handling what the author referred to as the muzzy, kind of the messy, fuzzy, real world. You're mentioning physics and, like, actual machinery moving and and... That, that that that's not necessarily as super precise as we like to pretend it's to be and mm-hmm. that there there's this whole movement to kind of bring analog chips into the mix to to better handle these the fact that some of these calculations are re- dealing with the real world and not just the sterile environment of a digital simulation uh do you run into that sort of muzziness a lot when you're dealing with real physical hardware or just factors that the digital environment just does not know how to account for.
4: Uh, Yeah, sometimes. Uh, One of the things that we often do in our world is called hardware-in-the-loop testing, where you take a piece of hardware and you simulate some piece of real-world equipment. And sometimes that gets gets to be interesting because you can never quite simulate it exactly. So in those cases, perhaps having some sort of analog stuff would be a much better way to do it.
2: There, how's that climbing harness feel? Great. Now, since none of us is heavy enough to be your belayer, we'll have to use this industrial strength crank.
0: Annie, I hate to interrupt, but someone just ordered a hot espresso on the rocks. How am I supposed to add ice to a hot espresso? I don't think they
2: meant ice. They meant they wanted it while literally climbing on the rocks, which seems an ill-advised activity to do with a hot beverage sir you're going to have to drink your coffee down here <coughs> oh good point these carabiners are not rated for your weight
3: I have a question since it's a real world world and things can get super messy how do you know if your hardware is lying to you? That is a very good question. Uh, so I can give you the official
4: answer, because I, I used to work in the nuclear industry. And so, yeah. Yeah, I worked for a company that built nuclear power plants. And their theory was, for every sensor, you need four sensors. Because if you just have one sensor, right, you have no idea if it's lying. Right? I mean, I guess if the number is like way out of range, if you're measuring temperature and it's like minus 200 degrees Kelvin, like, OK, yeah, that's impossible. Well, otherwise you have no idea right so if you have two sensors well then you can compare them and as long as they match you can be pretty sure that they're the same but when they don't match well which way is it now right which one's right so you had a third one right and that way if, if two of them agree and one goes now now you know now you know that the two that agree are probably the right value in the nuclear industry they go with four because that way one of these can fail and you still got three left so that's the official correct answer. Unless you're Boeing and you're doing your MCAS thing, and then you rely on one sensor that's guaranteed to fail, and then cr- planes crash, but that's a whole other... Oh... Yeah, that I don't know how they ever got that figured out, because I just looked at that, and I looked at my nuclear background like you'd never build something that relies on a single sensor, so...
3: I did not know that was the cause of all that craziness.
4: That was one cause. I mean, there, there, I think there were some software issues too, but a large part of it was they only relied on one sensor. And apparently those sensors, uh, you know, if they hit a bird or something they, or they get iced up, they don't work. So, And the crazy part is they had two sensors on the plane. They just decided to only use one of them. But the, I mean, this is my layperson, uh, you know, interpretation because I'm I, not an aerospace engineer, but I read a bunch of articles about it. And so, yeah, that's just craziness.
1: Oh, my word. So it's interesting because we were just talking with um we were just talking with someone else uh, a few days ago about um about uh how some bugs can have like very real world consequences and I brought up the uh the uh story of the I'm really mess up the name, but I wanna say it was the um Enioc. Um the the um radiation treatment um Oh, machine. Yeah, that one.
4: Telerac 25 or whatever it was. Or yes, like that. Yeah, yes. that one. I just I've... learned about that the other
1: day. And and so we're, we're talking about the fact that, again, yeah, none of us, you know, like Boeyon and I, and, and I believe we we're talking with Adam Gordon Bell, and we we're talking about how none of us really deal with that degree of like mission critical, but you've actually worked in nuclear. So your code had to be bug free. Like, what, what's what's the difference like between, like, okay, this could fail and we'll debug it versus this could fail and someone's going to get hurt?
4: So the first lesson, I think, from that story you're telling you, and I don't remember the name of it, but maybe, you know, we can figure out how to get that information out to people who need to know. It. But um, the first thing is always have hardware interlocks of some kind. Like, they didn't have any hard – it was weird because they had – they had made a new version and the old version had hardware interlocks and the new one, they took it out. Cause they said, Oh, the computer will take care of that. Therac and, 25. Uh, Therac twenty-five. There you go. So yes, that, that is the, uh, so that's the first lesson. And in, in the nuclear space, there's tons of hardware interlocks and things like that. So that's the first thing. And then the next thing is just like lay- layers upon layers of process, which is, you know, as a software engineer, I actually kind of bristle at that because I think it's a way overkill, but there's very good reason for that. Um, so
1: yeah. Process the, in, in what sense?
4: Oh well, like 50 million sign offs and and I mean to me the, the big thing is is the testing and testing it in as realistic a situation as possible. But also there's like in the nuclear industry, there's a separation between uh safety critical and non safety critical stuff. So almost everything I worked on was non safety critical. So, in theory, it could fail and the plant would not blow up or melt down or any of that stuff. But there were systems that were safety critical. And for those, they did like crazy stuff. Like, they, for some of them, they made, uh, they had two teams design solutions and they designed them uh, using different hardware, different software, different programming languages. And then they would, like put them together at the end and basically like order the outputs together so that like if this would, either one said it's time to shut the reactor down the reactor shuts down. So wow. like they would do things like that. That's so there's a lot of that. Clever. Yeah, and there's a lot of like quadruple redundancy and all the sensors and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and a lot of uh, a lot of risk tolerance and and doing like stack ups. So a lot of it was like. You know, if this is off by this much, how much can this be off and that be off before we like run into a problem, or like determining tolerances for things.
1: So, I can, you know, as much as I have been quoted before as as saying that you know, processes exist for people, not the other way around. I can definitely say I, I can see where processes come in handy. I help on one one team I was working on. We were in charge of shipping you know a major operating system image to all the cloud providers so like it's not maybe not life critical but still pretty mission critical like you don't want to mess that up and because we had had a massive turnover in the team and no one who had originally worked on the systems was on our team at that point um we were kind of rethinking how some things worked and we wound up i wound up being a part of like three people that literally wrote a whole a whole detailed process that we had to go through for like release freezes and who had to shepherd what through and, and, and who had to sign off on what, you know, we literally came up with an entire protocol um, because we had had a near miss. Like we had caught a bug just before it went out. That would have been really bad for some, for some people on the cloud and we're like, we don't want to make this mistake again. So we, 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 we retroed, yay Agile, we retroed, this is a problem, we came up with this whole process. So sometimes process can be excellent.
4: Yeah, well, it's interesting. So uh, LabVIEW is used in CERN, in like the big Hadron Collider. And I've heard this through the grapevine, so this is not like firsthand knowledge, but apparently like to get your software to run on the large Hadron Collider is like a huge process. There's a whole bunch of things you have to jump through and you have to pass all these tests and it has to be reviewed. But it's interesting because if something breaks and they find a bug like while it's running, the goal then is to just to get the thing back up and running. And that's like whatever quick and dirty fix you can do to make it work, do that and get it working. And then immediately the next time, like as soon as they shut it down, then they go back and they review it and they go through all this process again to get it back for, for the next version. But I thought that was interesting.
3: Wow. So I imagine it's pretty stressful work
4: yeah, I would imagine Being
3: doing the hot call. Picks. Like, we are large he- hadron collider is running, and you're on call for the next seven days. <laughs> yeah, make sure it doesn't create a black hole that'll destroy the universe. Thank you.
4: <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Wow. Oh, I, forgot what I was gonna say. Oh, uh, oh, the nuclear thing. There's a lot of pressure too. Sometimes, like usually, it's not that big a deal. Because what happens is uh, when they shut down the plant, that's when they go install all the new hardware and software. So like, usually it's like you've got this deadline, but it's like six months away or whatever. But you have to hit that deadline. And then while they're installing it, if they find bugs, then it's a big deal because uh, the plants make like so much money every day, like a million dollars a day or something. So that's like the old figures probably way more now. And so like if you delay them getting started by a day, that's like a couple million dollars. So
1: that's always wow. a problem. Yeah expensive
4: Yep. Yeah.
3: I admire you to be able to work under that level of stress
4: yeah well I did uh, I eventually quit and moved on to doing other things and now I try to avoid anything regulated as much as I can so
1: <laughs> so so what do you build now then like like what is what what's what excites you now um, that is you know not oh my gosh if I screw this up it's gonna cost a <laughs> lot of money
4: Well, uh, so actually, uh, I am working on a project right now for a company that makes uh, auto belays for rock climbing. So that's kind of high consequence, too, so.
1: Fair, but But maybe not as high deadline.
4: Yeah, no, no high deadlines or anything. Yeah, basically, it's uh, production line testing. So as they produce these things, they put them on a tester as they come off the production line and make sure that they all work, that all the screws are tightened properly and all that stuff.
1: So, nice. So there's software in the auto belay
4: uh There's no software in it. Uh, it's a physical tester. So they hook it up to like a motor and it pulls the the strap out at a certain speed. And like at a certain speed, it should lock and things like that. And make okay, sure so that it picks up
1: slack. So you help write the code that tests it then, basically? Yep. Okay.
4: So, so cool. basically, there's like a motor and it basically puts it through its bases. So it acts, the motor acts like the climber and like lets out some slack and pulls it in and... Things like that mimics uh, climber, and then it records the amount of force and things like that. Um, it has to meet some kind of profile.
1: Well, so. uh, I'm very glad that we're not actually taking software with us on the rock climbing trips because that'd be scary. But um, that's test yeah, testing can uh, testing sounds like a lot of fun. So because you're because you're looking for a different sort of bug, then at that point, aren't you? Yeah, actually, you're looking for hardware bugs. Yeah. So what is kind of the difference between how software bugs manifest and hardware bugs manifest then?
4: That's an interesting question. Uh, so hardware bugs, so sometimes you find bugs in the design and sometimes it's just a bug in that, that particular implementation. So for example, when I worked at Westinghouse, we uh, built, uh, we were testing circuit boards, right? And so the existing circuit boards designs, right? We were, we were detecting that like a gate on an, a chip had failed. So, you know, the gates would output normally like zero to 15 volts. And as they started to fail, that voltage would drop. And there was some level where which you said, okay, yeah, this is bad. Go replace it. So that's just like normal wear and tear on an individual thing. But sometimes they would do new designs of boards and we would find weird bugs. Uh, usually they were timing bugs where like two gates would change at the same time. And one got there slightly first. It was a little bit of like a race condition similar to like a race condition in software. And depending on which one got there first, it might trigger something and then that would cause problems. They weren't lined up correctly. So there there were a few times that we found problems like that and we had to send the boards back to design and be like, hey, you know, put a little capacitor in there or something to delay these two signals so that they get there at the same time or something. Wow.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's when we start leaving the realm of just software engineering. And I almost feel like hearing that, I almost feel like I need to wrap software engineering with finger quotes now. there's a there's a massive difference between you know what i do or what Boyan does i think we're 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 coming up with a solution but you know we're we're in that significantly more forgiving zone of of software code where our debugger can just go hey you forgot a semicolon on line 75 Mm -hmm. gold and then you're now into oh you you have this weird race condition on this board and you had to put in a capacitor and 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 like, you got to really know what, what you're doing and figure out you needed the capacity there in the first place.
4: Yeah, and also, too, in our, in our world, there's, like, issues with things like uh, sampling frequencies and stuff. Like, if you're sampling stuff fast enough to uh, filter out noise or something or make sure you're getting the right signal content that you want. So, so there's a lot of uh, signal engineering or, like, electrical engineering that's required. And so sometimes you find problems in that where, like, you... The, the, the thing itself is not designed correctly. So like, as an example, sometimes like for an engineering point of view, like you want certain signals to be lined up in time and like certain cards, like they will sample the channels, they'll sample all of them. And like, as opposed to simultaneously sampling them. So there's like a tiny time delay between the channels and sometimes that will cause you problems. So it's, it's like being aware of some of these issues. Which is not really a software thing, but it's it's more of like domain knowledge, I think. So you could equate it to that,
1: perhaps. Hmm. So is what what can a team do? Then you were mentioning the kind of design flaws then. What what can a team uh-huh. do, whether maybe they'd be designing hardware or software, but how can they create an environment where they're more likely to catch these design bugs earlier? Can they catch them earlier?
4: Uh, I mean, to me, I think the big thing is, is, is speed of iteration and just getting feedback quickly, I think, is, is part of it. And then having testing in place, having a good, robust uh, testing in place. And it's, it's kind of hard. as These systems get bigger and more complicated. And, like, you know, for example, like I was building stuff that interacted with a nuclear power plant, right? Well, I didn't have a nuclear power plant sitting there to test it on. You right, so, you, so you had to have some kind of simulator and so that's where you get into the hardware and the loop stuff and building simulator. But you know, anytime you build a simulator, you run into problems. I'm sure you've seen this like where the simulator isn't the same as the real thing. It mimics it, but like there's some differences. And sometimes you run into those differences when you're testing and it can cause you to get false positives or false negatives. And You know, like for example, if you've got a serial instrument and you've got the manual and you send the command exactly as it is in the manual, but, hey, somebody rev the serial instrument, and that responds differently to that command or something. That can cause you problems. I've definitely run into that.
1: I remember a story of uh, a data center. I was reading this. There was a story of a data center that was experiencing a, a, a crash every night at the same time. And they couldn't figure out what it was, and they, they, they kept having just like the server was to crash and had to be manually restarted and they couldn't figure out what was going on with it and finally out of desperation they um uh what they did is they just did a stakeout they literally just had a couple of the engineers stay in the lab overnight and right on time right when it was supposed to they checked everything like there's it's like the only thing that's the only thing indicating this is the time of night that this thing would go down like Nothing with the temperature, there's nothing with the electricity, Is like it would just the servers would just crash. And it was just deadlock have to be hard-booted. And anyway, so these, these engineers are staying overnight and the servers crash. And one of them happens to look out the window and there's a police officer on the corner talking on his radio. And so they that, that engineer on the hunch goes out there and asks the officers, like, uh, hi, is everything all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm just radioing, radioing in. Um, strange question. Um, do you radio in at the same time every night yeah of course we're on a schedule okay do you radio in from this corner every night yeah i do could you do me a favor and radio in from that corner tomorrow night sure so he did they never had another crash (laughs) wow (laughs) it was that's crazy the particular frequency he was broadcasting on
4: That's interesting. I didn't think that's where that was going. I thought that was going to go to everybody started their cron jobs at exactly midnight. <laughs>
1: no, it's a, that's one of the first things they checked. Is like, is it cron? No, no. It's just it's just this one cop radioing in on that one frequency in that particular position was just enough to create a, I guess, RFI. Uh, you know, RFD. You know, interference and
4: electromagnetic stuff is complete black magic. Like we used to do, we have to have to do EMC testing on everything. And like literally the test would fail and some guy would come along and he'd like stick his finger in there and like put a piece of tape right there and you put a piece of foil tape there and you run the test and it passes. If you asked him how he came up with that, he's like, I don't know, I just guessed. (laughs) And you're just like, okay, but it worked. Is
1: that that like the magic switch? (laughs) Do you remember the magic switch story out of the AI labs back back in the 70s?
4: No, I do not.
1: Okay, so, and this is, again, again, getting into the muzziness of real-world hardware. There was, uh, in the dinosaur pen, you know, where they had the mainframes and whatever at MIT, um, there was this this switch, and it had two labels on it. It said magic and more magic, and it was in the more magic position. It was inside of a cabinet somewhere. And so they were looking at this one guy. He's like, what is this? He looks, and there's no, there's no, it's not attached. It's not hooked up. There's one cable coming from it going into the ground. It's like, it's clearly not attached to anything. So he's like, this is weird. So he turns it to magic instead of uh, more magic and the server crashes immediately. The whole mainframe goes down. And so he puts that back to the more magic position, turns on the mainframe and he goes and gets one of his professors. He says, hey, you need to come see this. This is weird. And so the professor comes in and go, he examines it. He goes, no, nah, it doesn't do anything. Turns it off, the mainframe crashes. It's like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so they, same thing. They are calling another engineer. He comes in. He's like, winds up actually, you know, diking out the, the, the thing and turning it off. And you know, and everything's fine. But it's like the the best they can guess is that there was a very very small. I don't know what the exact terms are because I'm not an engineer, but like like the electrical uh, grounding different
4: kind of the grounding
1: yeah. is that difference between the grounding when it was in the on or the off position. Was just enough to cause some sort of problem. Some absolute electrical nerd must have hooked it up. So the guy who tells the story says that he still he now has the switch in the basement of his house. And he he says it may just be superstition, but I keep it in the more magic position. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, that could definitely happen, like ground currents and, and just potential differences and things like that. Yeah, electricity is kind of weird sometimes. Like, measuring very precise things, like we had a circuit board tester, and, like, you know, we had, like, six or seven of them, and the grounding wiring really should have been, like, precisely the same between all of them, but it wasn't, and that would definitely cause problems, and boards would magically pass on one machine and not on another.
1: Just strange. So the fact we don't understand electricity, then, is this the core of our strangest bugs? Perhaps. Perhaps.
4: But well, I mean, definitely like hardware bugs, like for example, like you know SSDs, like where cells get corrupted and stuff. A lot of that is hardware stuff. And there's like really crazy. You really want to blow your mind? There's uh, there's two things that'll blow your mind. One is called Van Eck freaking, which is worth looking up. If you point a this is, goes back to like the eighties. If you point a strong enough antenna at the cable going to a monitor, you can recreate the picture on the monitor from like miles away. That's crazy. And then there's another one called uh, there's an attack on computers called rowhammer, where the RAM if you toggle the, the bits on either side of a piece of RAM it's like in the RAM, right? You've got all these cells and they're like in an array. If you can toggle the ones on one, on one side of it, it will eventually cause the other side to change. And so you can cause like bit flips. It's weird. Is, it's like a is. property of like the RAM itself that like just by writing to this one section of RAM over and over and over again, you can cause other pieces of RAM to, to toggle, and then it causes like page faults and stuff. And if you're a hacker, you can go figure out how to take advantage of that. But it's crazy.
1: Oh man. Well, and and that starts to make the the existence of Schrodinger bugs a little less mythological then, because I and and I know people hear about Schrodinger bugs for the first time bugs that. You know, they don't manifest until someone just observes aloud, oh, that shouldn't be working, at which point it stops working for everybody. And I can imagine that a lot of people would hear about that for the first time and think, oh, that's just just nonsense. There's no way that's true. I have actually watched it happen. I had a test suite, talking about testing, I had a test suite running on a piece of code in a remote CI CD environment and had been running successfully, passing for over a year. Our code had been relying on this. Like this is a part of our part of our code. It, it, things have been relying on it. It'd been working, it'd been compiling just fine. And then one day, one of the interns looks at that code, he goes, Hey, I was looking at that code, and, and that shouldn't be working because of this. We change nothing, we saved nothing, there's no commit. And the moment he says that, I flip over to the dashboard. And the test has gone red.
4: Interesting.
1: And it never went green again. We actually had to remove the code.
4: That's really strange. Did you have your phone on? And are you running those on Amazon servers? Maybe they're like, No, your they're phone my like... servers.
1: <laughs> they were absolutely my servers. It's like the server was running in my house at the time, actually. And I'm just like, this is alarming. <laughs> we changed. No updates, nothing. Like literally five minutes before he said it, the test had passed green. The right after he said it, it went red.
4: Well, those things definitely, I've had them happen before, uh, particularly with like race conditions, right? Race conditions are notorious for that, right? Because when you're not observing it, the race condition happens and then you put a breakpoint, and all of a sudden now you've changed the timing and now it never happens again, right? Until you remove the breakpoint, and then, and the lab is weird with the race conditions because every time it compiles, it compiles slightly differently. So sometimes it might compile in the race condition and sometimes it might not. And so that's just weird. I
1: don't know, I, yeah, that's, yeah. You know, so we have the Heisen bugs where we can affect it by our debugging efforts and the Schrödinger bugs. I don't know. Maybe it has to do with, maybe well, the reason it's called a Schrödinger bug, of course, for reference to Schrödinger's cat, but you know, maybe it has some quantum. Because I mean, there are there are quantum properties. You, you get you get a quantum scientist talking about observation and the effect that observing something has on a system. I, it, we don't understand electricity. <laughs> let's let's just put it that way: we don't understand electrons. We don't understand physics.
4: Yeah, no electrical engineering. That's definitely a well-known thing. Like when you hook up a probe or something, you're you're changing the electric circuit by hooking it up. So yeah. You know. Typically, you like set something to be really high impedance so that like the effect is minimized, but it's still there on a on a really tiny level. So,
3: what I'm getting from this is, if I want to have no bugs in my code, I just need to hire somebody to stare it really really hard at the server, and nothing bad will go wrong, right?
4: Can I get that job? I'll just stand there and stare. <laughs>
3: Is that anything like the kill switch engineer joke that's been running around
1: for, for AI? All you have to do is sit here and for, and uh, unplug the server if it tries to take over the world.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't seen that joke, but yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah,
1: throw a bucket of water on it for good measure if, if it, if it uh, has any aspirations. Yeah, that was uh, that was going around. It was allegedly an open AI job listing. Oh, that's okay.
4: That's it's not actually funny. what
1: the job listing for kill switch engineer was, but it could might as well be.
4: Yeah. Break glass in case of emergency. You get them in a little glass case. Break the glass and let them out. Like, okay.
1: <laughs> oh man. Break case of, in front of the case of Terminator, I guess. Too.
4: Yeah. I saw a picture somewhere and it had like a network cable and it said it had a big sign that said "In case of emergency, unplug or something." Those people.
3: <laughs>
1: Well, and, and I think all of this just puts me more and more in the camp of I prefer to leave my computers out of things when I can. I like typewriters. I like physical watches. I like, you know, CDs. I like I like manual things. The more analog, the more... I mean, I see these aren't totally analog, but, like, the, the, the closer you get to analog, the happier I am. Because analogs, I guess, you know, it's muzzier, sure. Maybe it's a little less weird, though.
4: I don't know. It's amazing to me how many, like, serious computer engineers and stuff, I do not own any IoT stuff at all. Like, I, I don't want a connected refrigerator or... or like, I just, I just see, like... I buy a, connect, a, a connected refrigerator. Everything's great until the OS goes out of uh, updates. and There's no way to update it, and then the thing just bricks. And it's like, why? Why would I want that?
1: Absolutely. There was I, I was um, I was on someone's podcast a few years ago, and he made a remark that he had that he had had uh, a sentence come out of his lips that he never thought he would have come out of his lips. His his wife was like, "Hey, honey, can you get this for me?" He said, "Just a second, hon. I'm updating the firmware on our light bulbs." <laughs> That's and he funny. just stopped and said what world are we in
4: <laughs> that is pretty crazy yeah i don't know i mean i just look at all of that and to, in my mind most of the benefits seem like gimmicks and it just seems like too much of a downside but maybe i just don't understand it well enough
1: i i think the more i understand about it the more i would agree that they are just gimmicks it's like okay you can't check if you need milk you know it's like we and Completely veering off the topic of bug hunting for a minute, I, I think we've lost something crucial as a society, and that is the process of actually just interacting with our world. We have sensors for everything when we have a perfectly good pair of eyes, perfectly good pair of ears, perfectly good nose. Observe your world. Just go look at it with your eyes. You don't need a computer to tell you you're out of milk. Look in your fridge. There's more surprises in yeah. than just your empty milk. You might have forgotten that you bought something that you want to make a, a really cool meal out of. You know, go grocery shopping. You'll discover something on the shelf you didn't know you wanted. You know, just actually interact with your with your universe. Don't put it all through a computer.
4: Well, that process of discovery, I think, is interesting because uh, the algorithms just feed us what we already know we like and already know we want, and you never discover new things that way. So I think that's an interesting casualty Uh, to play devil's advocate though. I heard of a really good use case for the uh, lights, which I hadn't thought of. Uh, Apparently if you're say you're deaf and somebody calls you on the phone, right? Like, you you know, the the lights can blink and they can even blink like different colors to tell you who's Mm -hmm. calling and stuff. So, so I think there's, there's certainly some things that they can do that are not gimmicky that are actually like really useful. But the problem is I feel like we, we just, we chase shiny shiny things, and we we're just like constantly like, oh, we can do this and this and this, and we never really think about like, is that even a good idea? What value does it actually bring?
1: So, we're infamous for for coming up with solutions that want of a problem.
4: Yes, uh, I see that all the time.
1: Yeah, it's like, and, and you know what? If it is a if it is a solution, great. I don't have a problem with the technology existing, like you mentioned with the lights. That's great, but maybe we should maybe we should uh, work on actually finding those situations and engineering specific solutions for that instead of just let's just have a house that turns the lights off when you close the door or when someone hacks into the system and decides to hold your house for ransom I wish I were making that one up there was a family that was actually held ransom the the, the cyber attackers kept their house at 95 degrees on the heater in summer
4: until
1: they paid the ransom money
4: that's crazy
1: so no, I'm gonna be analog till the day I die.
4: Well, also, the, see some of those things, right? Like turning on the lights when there's people in the room. We already have motion sensors for that, and things like without smarts in them, right? Yeah. I mean, those those little the little domes by the switches. Those have been there for years.
3: <gasps> My brother has that, and that's super amazing. You just plug it in, and if it detects you moving, it. Uh, Turns up, and it's super uh, nice when you have to go in the middle of the night to visit the toilet. And I was like amazed, like this is the peak of technology. What I do not need anything more than this. And then on the absolute flip side was seeing a commercial
1: for uh, for a a smoker, and it was you know they're smoking meat, and the the guy is standing on his standing in his kitchen. You see the smoker is on the patio outside. He's standing in the middle of his kitchen, going, "Oh, the brisket's done." Like, walk outside, there's sunlight, wind, birds, experiences, smell the brisket cooking. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think we have just engineered a bunch of excuses to stay in our cocoons.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like, too, we get to this point where uh, technology is supposed to be a tool and then we end up serving the technology. We rearrange our lives around the technology instead of, uh, it's kind of like, you know, the saying like, you know, instead of like accepting whatever job comes along, like build a career around what you want to do with your life and where you want to be. And and we we just don't do that. We just like accept the default and then we transform our lives around the technology.
1: And then we're not happy with the results and we can't figure out why. Yeah. Well, Reality is, we all build tech, and you are good at it, so. (laughs) This has been a blast uh, chatting with you, Sam, and uh, I've learned more than uh, I ever bargained for about hardware engineering, and wow, that's a whole nother world that I'm now very intrigued by, but also I'm grateful that I don't have to deal with that fuzziness on a daily basis.
4: Yeah. No, thank you very much for uh, having me out to, to talk. It's great. quite enjoyed it. We'll have to do it again. Uh, that rock climbing wall was quite fun, so I'll probably be back yeah. there. Try some of the other flavors.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, there's a piña colada flavor I haven't gotten to yet. Oh. I, might, uh, I might try that one out. I was looking at the watermelon. Ooh. Yeah. That might be fun.
3: Yeah. yeah. You sure you don't want to try that rock wall out, Bojan? Uh, I'm happy with my strawberries. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bogunters Cafe, this is Jess. Yep. We're open 24-7 at Boghunters.cafe. You can also find us on LinkedIn and on Mastodon as Boghunterscafe at Hackiderm.io Uh uh-huh absolutely our music is provided by audionautics.com we have a link on our website yes as a matter of fact we do have some coconut flavored candy on the rock wall you're welcome bye bye
2: well it took all my problem solving skills but i finally made it possible for the unicorn to climb the wall there's just one problem i need some help turning the crank
0: I can give you a hand with that. But wait, where did the unicorn go? He was right here. Hey!
2: You failed to mention you could levitate yourself! The least you could do is give me some more blueberry candy while you're up there!